Uh, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Today, we're going to be talking about the ending of Title 42 and what that's going to mean for us on the southern border. We're going to talk about Pakistan in turmoil, and then we're going to talk about a very interesting article coming out of The Spectator. All that and more coming up. let's get into the rapid fire news. So, former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan has been arrested on charges of corruption. And then he was released. He was arrested, then he was released, and uh, we'll, we'll get a little bit more into that later on this episode, but he's been released now, and it seems to be out of an effort to try to release or so open the pressure valve a little bit on Pakistani society as when they arrested him, Pakistan had massive protests and riots, a lot of riots. And so this appears to be more so out of uh, political pragmatism rather than, you know, them actually going along with the law. Although the court said it was illegal to arrest him, but shoot, if it was illegal to arrest him, eh, you wouldn't have arrested him. If you were following the law, that is, if it's illegal to arrest him, you wouldn't arrest him. But we'll, we'll get a little bit, we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. We have Israel carrying out bombings on the Gaza Strip. And like this one happened immediately after I finished last week's episode. Because I finished the episode and then I watched a little bit more news after since, and <clears throat> excuse me, that's just, you know, uh, my daily diet is a lot of news. So, the second I finish the podcast, I go over to YouTube watching my my trusty, dusty sources. And I look at my phone, and boom, Israel conducts massive firebombing in the Gaza Strip. I'm like, wow, that's just insane. But uh, at least we know that the Israelis, with certainty, are in fact not doing anything to change their position. They are not adjusting to the changing times in their region. They still, they still have time. They still have plenty of time. I, I'll keep saying that. I'll keep prefacing that. They have plenty of time to make these adjustments. And it's not... Uh, do I want to say it's not big? Uh, no, I, I think it's big. No, I think, I think it's fair to say that these would be some very big adjustments. Big as in not bombing your neighbors on a daily basis and violating their sovereignty by flying planes into their airspace. You know, that's pretty big. You know, to go from regularly aggressing upon your neighbors and doing whatever you want in their territory to not regularly aggressing upon your neighbors and doing whatever you want in their territory, that's a pretty big change. So it's a big one, but they have plenty of time to do it, and they're being given plenty of reasons to do it. There's this wave of peace deals coming across the Middle East, and a lot of them are centered on Syria. Iran and Arabia are no longer enemies which means that that unofficial alliance between Israel and Saudi Arabia is all but broken because the primary target of that alliance was Iran. So now if the Saudis and the Iranians are getting together and they're embracing their Muslim identity, their shared Muslim identity, and you're seeing the Syrians being welcomed back into the fold of the Arab family, the Arab family of nations, then what does that leave for Israel if they're going to continue to harass that Muslim world that has now come together? What does that mean for Israel when they're going to continue to harass the Arab world that has now welcomed Syria back into its fold? That that doesn't go together. Well, though they can go together, it's just you're not going to have a very a very thriving Israel. In that world, you're going to have a Syria that is in danger of being retaliated against with the support of multiple, larger, wealthier powers. Israel cannot win a six-day war against its neighbors again. 
the dis the discrepancy in power between them is not what it used to be. It's it's not. And any opportunity that the Palestinians have, they will rise up. So any war that the Israelis fight, any like conventional war that the Israelis get into, perhaps because they keep bombing Syria and they're given an ultimatum, stop doing that, and they ignore it, and then they get into a war with perhaps two or more of the major powers of the region. Now that would be something if Iran and Arabia were in a joint war against anybody, let alone Israel, the infidel. Now that is a jihad. That That's uh, like the possibilities being shaped up right now are things that I was only able to speculate on just a year ago. The idea that Iran and Arabia would get together uh, against Israel. But now that Iran and Arabia have already gotten together. So that's half the equation. And if Israel and if they're both backing Assad now and Israel continues its aggression against its neighbors, and I know we, we started this off with them bombing the Gaza Strip, but who's to say that the Muslim world doesn't get together and say, hey, you need to stop doing that? And what's Israel going to do? Are they going to continue to bomb the Gaza Strip? Are they going to continue to force Palestinians out of their homes and then build walls so they can't get back? Israel has some serious course corrections it needs to make, and I'll continue to stress that, but they just don't want to make them. They're almost as bad at adjusting to the multipolar world as the United States has been. They're almost as bad, I'd say. I'd say in terms of rankings, it's Europe, United States, and then Israel and UK. And that that's, I'd say that's a, a rough, rough, but fairly accurate list. It's not like any of them are doing particularly well at the adjustment. So you can move it around the pieces and you'll still end up with a similar list because they're all really, really, really bad at adjusting to the rise of the multipolar world order. Israel might cost itself its sovereignty if it doesn't get its act together. So with this constant attacking of the Gaza Strip and of the Palestinians, combined with a massive wave of peace across the Middle East, a rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and all the major powers of the region coalescing around the Assad government in Syria, at a certain point, we're going to reach a, a moment in time where it, what is essentially going to amount to an ultimatum is going to be given to the Israelis. You're going to stop what you're doing in uh, Palestine or else. And if at that point, and that'll be the last possible chance, and like that will be the last chance. Now, perhaps it doesn't, the, the defiance of that ultimatum doesn't lead to a war, but perhaps an economic war instead. Embargoes. Uh, of oil, energy, goods, food, perhaps even an, an open and unapologetic war against Israeli shipping moving through the, the Gulf. Well, not the Gulf, the Suez Canal and the Red Sea. It's not like it'd be unfair. The Israelis attack Iranian shipping all the time. The United States attacks Iranian shipping all the time. So since that's clearly on the table, Who's to say that something like that couldn't happen? Like just a year ago, we were speculating on Iran and Arabia getting together, having their rapprochement. Now that rapprochement has happened. And we have this wave of peace deals making their way across the Middle East, from Yemen, Syria, to Iran and Arabia, even Iraq. And all that leaves is a, a isolated United States in the northern parts of Syria. Even the, even the Turks are getting out. Because they're, they're negotiating their way out, but they're getting out. So that leaves the United States and Israel. If we get our ass beat in the region, we can just go home. If Israel gets its ass beat, they might not have a country. So, something to think about. Something to think about as we watch what just might end up being the slow motion self-destruction of the Israeli state. In other news, we had the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi 
currently set to visit the White House in June. I believe it is June 22nd that the date has been set for. And we will see uh, how Biden embarrasses us this time. No, perhaps he won't. Perhaps he won't. He did that brief tour through Europe where he went to Geneva. He met with NATO. He, he met with Putin. And it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. So perhaps this too won't be that bad. It'll probably be cringe, but not that bad. But he's going to meet with Modi. He's probably going to try to talk Modi out of the BRICS, out of the multipolar world order, out of further integration with Russia and China. And Modi's probably, in all honesty, going to give him the the Saudi treatment, where he sits there, he nods his head, yeah, 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 uh-huh, uh-huh. And then when he goes home, he's going to go right back. He's going to pretend that conversation never even happened. He's going to pretend. That's how it's going to go. That's how I expect it to go. Assuming that Biden continues his uh, abnormally well, his abnormally uh, good performance when dealing with foreign leaders, you know, on, on actual foreign soil, you know, I do have to be a little fair, even though I don't like him. But that's why I see that going down. Uh, we have Turkey's elections. We have Turkey's elections. Moving on to the second round. We have Erdogan getting 49.39% of the vote, falling short of the 50% needed to bypass the runoffs. However, his primary opposition, Kilic Daruglu, has scored around 44.92%. And the remaining powers account, the remaining parties accounted for less than 6% left over of the vote. So if all of those voters break for Kilic, then he will win. But otherwise, it looks as though Erdogan will win his re-election, which will mean the continuation of his current policy agendas. He will have to be, he'll be forced to change up his economic policy because of the inflation and economic crisis in Turkey. But aside from that, we can expect more of the same. The gas uh, proposal, that's going to move through. Reproachment with Syria, that's going to continue. The Playing hardball with the West to extort as much value as you can. That's going to continue. We saw it with the EU and the migrant situation. We saw it with the NATO uh, trying to put Finland and uh, Sweden in. Sweden still hasn't been accepted in. So we'll see what concessions Turkey gets out of that. So playing hardball with the West, we can expect uh, Turkey to continue doing that, especially as they continue integrating themselves with Russia, with China, with the multipolar. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of today's episode. And I want to start by talking about something, because in my endless search for the news to bring you on this podcast, and just out of my natural hobby of paying attention to events around the world, I am constantly inundated and bombarded with this, the propaganda. And I know we talk about it a lot on the podcast, specifically within the context of like Ukraine and Taiwan and whatnot, but... I gotta say, it really does get tiring. I'm not tired of doing the podcast, of course, but in being tired for so long, I've realized through the endless amount of thinking that I do, as my mind is very overactive, that I am tired and sick and sick and tired of being told who it is that I have to hate and who I have to go beyond the borders of my country to fight. And No, my opposition to these things does not come out of any lack of patriotism or love for my country. I am a nationalist. And as a nationalist, I do not view America first as a political idea, but rather a common sense idea from which political ideas ought to be built off of. The interests of America should take precedent in matters of both foreign and domestic policy. And no matter how much I listen to the justifications for our involvement around the world, I cannot help but come to the conclusion that they are inadequate and not proportionate to the damage that we have done, both to the countries we intervene in, on the premise of humanitarian aid. Oh, it was a necessary intervention. Oh, America had to do something. Well, yeah, we did something. We blew them back to the Stone Ages. The damage we've done to them, as well as to our own country, which we've allowed to rot on the vine in favor of pleasing faraway peoples of whom we have no affiliation with 
it's not worth it. And you guys, look, you already know how I feel about Taiwan and Ukraine, so I won't even go there today. But in listening to these justifications, I'm, again, inundated with why I have to hate the government of this or that country. And that's that's the premise. That's the hook. This country, insert country here is so evil. Insert country here has this terrible government that's so evil. It's a, a brutal authoritarian dictatorship. They oppress their people. Therefore, America has to do something about them. Like, oh, well, that's one massive jump in logic that I do not agree with. I have, and it's, you can see it everywhere. And I, it'll be easier to see it now that I've pointed it out to you. You'll, you'll be able to see it immediately if you haven't already. I'm, I'm certain many of you feel the same way. And a lot of you probably noticed it yourselves looking at the news. Any, whether you watch CNN or Fox or, or you know, real news, which is in the independent space. But you'll see it everywhere. You, I, have to, I have to hate China. I have to hate Russia and North Korea and Iran and Afghanistan and Syria and Belarus. I have to hate Russia because Putin's supposedly evil. And I have to hate China because Xi Jinping is also supposedly evil. I have to hate Hungary because they don't want to let randos from Africa and the Middle East into their country. They built a wall to keep them out. I have to hate Arabia because they killed a journalist I've never heard of before and then literally cooked his dead body. So there was no evidence. I have to hate the palace. I have to hate Palestine for being a terrorist state. And then I have to hate Israel for being an apartheid state engaged in ethnic cleansing against the Palestinians. I have to hate Syria because they're supposedly you they supposedly use chemical weapons on their own people. I have to hate Iraq because they supposedly had WMDs. I have to hate Iran because the Ayatollah is just so brutal and so oppressive and they supposedly are just one week away from building that nuke. They're just one week if you if you leave them alone for too long, if you don't look at them, they're just well you're just going to wake up and they're going to have a nuke. And we've been talking about this for years now. They've been one week away from a nuke for years now. But you have to hate Iran because they're, they're so dangerous and evil. And if that wasn't enough, I have to hate insert terrorist group here on top of that. And in all of this talk about hate and who it is that I need to be ready to fight at a moment's notice, I am ready to fight China to defend freedom and the free world. In all that I have discovered... Uh, something that was common sense, but profound at the same time, which is I hate being told who it is that I have to hate. Hating others is a waste of time that has never once done this country any good. We've complained about being the world's police for decades now, and we could be using the emergence of the multipolar world to finally leave and spend our time building a uniquely American civilization. But instead, we're we're pissing away tens of billions of dollars on fucking Ukraine. We have to, because we have to fight Russia and hate Putin while we do it. We could be using this wave of peace deals and negotiations, peace negotiations, currently taking over the Middle East, taking it by storm, a desert storm, if you will, of peace. We could be using that as a perfect excuse to finally leave the region. But instead, our, forgive me on this, I'll be toxic so you don't have to. Instead, our mentally challenged politicians have decided we have to protect the Kurds, a group of people nobody in this country has ever even seen, and we have to protect them from the Peshmerga and uh, our supposed NATO ally. We have to protect them from both of them even though the Peshmerga are themselves Kurds and the Turks are in active negotiations for the withdrawal of their troops from Syria. It's, uh, it's, it's nonsense. It's nonsense and it just eats away at the mind. And I, I'm sure many of you feel the, the way I do about the, the constant war drums playing in our ears to manufacture consent for just one war after the next. And while I'm also certain that we'll be dealing with those war drums for a good while, I I had to get it off my chest. 
because it really it really does get in the it really does wear away at you and it really gets in the way of collecting the news sometimes like i i was trying to go through this article talking about the immigration and the title 42 which we're going to talk about in just a minute i'm going through it and it's this incredibly long article really really long like when you you do the scroll down and you see the little bar on the side you you know you're in for something when the bar is smaller than your fingernail but i had to i had to use the the page search feature so that i could get to what i was actually looking for which is the number of people that are about to cross and the entire way through it's like oh you have to hate donald trump for this it's like well, okay, that's nice, but I need the actual information. If I'm looking at something regarding Ukraine, oh, Putin's deadly, lethal invasion of Ukraine, the, the greatest in World War II. Okay, well, I didn't need to know all that. <laughs> I just needed to know what's, what town got bombed today as a result of the artillery strikes. Putin's blunder in Bakhmut. Oh, well, okay, that, that's nice, but I, I just wanted to see... <laughs> I just wanted to see which side was making advances today. It's... It gets in the way so much, and it's it's annoying. (laughs) It's annoying. Like, uh, all I wanted was the information. I I got the message the last time where you were talking about how much you hated Putin. I I get it, and I know I could probably be accused of this same very thing when I talk about how much I don't want to be involved with Taiwan and Ukraine, but at the very least... You know where I'm coming from, and I can sit there and explain in painful detail why it is that I won't, and why I don't support those wars. But they just they just say, "Oh, Putin's evil. Oh, Xi Jinping is evil. Trump's evil. Oh, they're they're evil. You do, you have to hate them. You have to hate them. Oh, they they did something good. Oh, you have to hate them anyway. It's like no, that's that's not how this goes. They're like get away from me. <laughs> I just wanted the information." But uh, it's I, I had to get it off. I had to get it off the chest because it really does wear away at you. And and oh wow, I just feel so much better. I feel so much better. But now that uh, uh, now that we've gotten past that, uh, I'll just end by saying it's very annoying. It's very annoying. But now that I've emptied the clip. Let's get on with the show because we're talking about Title 42 expiring, or well, actually, it already did expire last week, in fact. Title 42 being the name of the collective immigration restrictions put in place by the Trump administration during the pandemic in accordance with the prior 1944 public health law, which enables you to put in certain restrictions at the border with public health being the justification. Now, because the Biden administration back in January ended the state of emergency over the over COVID-19, that ended the justification for the public health emergency-based order, uh, which was Title 42. And with the removal of that Title 42, so uh, too has gone the border restrictions that were put in place courtesy of Title 42. And now... We have hundreds of thousands of people, like human waves washing up onto our shore, coming to our border. 10,000 people crossed on Tuesday alone. 28,000 were in custody by Wednesday morning, and one number put uh, it, one number put it at like 80-something thousand crossed on Thursday, which is quite exponential. Now, some conservative estimates put the number of people waiting just across the border who haven't quite crossed yet. Some people put that number at around 150,000, with tens if not hundreds of thousands more likely coming to the border. They're en route, but they haven't made it there yet. And I got to say, this is this is a... Uh, how you say, uh, uh, not good. I wish I had my Spanish available for me, but I took German class. <laughs> but this is definitely going to sink that Biden ship. Because de- back in 2016, a lot of people didn't really pay attention to the border. Not really. It was it was a trickle, you know. It was a trickle. You could, you could ignore it. But when 3 million people... Well, 
we have 3 million encounters at the border last year. And you see that people by the hundreds of thousands are coming in every month. Like the, the current numbers, the official numbers, because we, we have to preface that and we know they lie about inflation. So let's not pretend they're going to tell the truth about everything else. The official numbers already put the number of encounters that we have at six to 7,000 encounters a day. And I'm using encounters with some quotations here because uh, that just, that means people crossing the border illegally and they just don't want to call it that. So, so six to 7,000 illegal border crossings a day, a day. So when you run the math and you know what, I'll, I'll run the math right now, run the math right now. So you have 6,000 times that by 30, you get 180,000. Now, that is an average, uh, funnily enough, but the numbers we get are 150,000 crossing the border in January of this year, 200,000 crossing in February of this year, then 190,000 in March of this year, which when you put them together and then divide by three, you get 180,000, which is uh, very convenient. So the, the numbers in that case are in line with one another. So when you take that average, 180,000, and then you multiply it by 12 for a whole year, times 12, you get 2.16 million people that we can reasonably expect to come here. Based on pre-Title 42 ending numbers. So th these are the numbers when Title 42 was in place. We had three over we had over three million encounters last year at the border. And based on the numbers of the, the averages between January, February, and March of this year, we can expect 2.1 million by, to come by the end of this year. So the, the conservative estimate on how many people are going to be coming here is 2 to 3 million people this year. But that is based on numbers we had with Title 42 in place. And we can't really use the Trump era numbers because Trump was hard on the border got the numbers down. So we can probably add a half a million to a million people on top of these numbers. So instead of the last year range being two to three million, we can probably expect three to four million coming this year. Maybe more. Maybe. Like, like when you see these videos of these people coming in, it, it's it's like a film of the war in China during World War II, if you've ever seen film, where you, you just see these masses of people, just these masses of people crossing these open distances. It, there's not, it's not necessarily the gunshots. It, no, you, you just see these, these armies just running full speed across open plains. That's what we're witnessing at our border right now. Uh, and funnily enough, some of them are carrying flags with them. So it has all the optics of an invasion, uh, but, you know, look like a duck, sound like a duck. Yeah, it's probably a duck, which makes it an invasion. It's certainly an illegal crossing of our border. That's what it is. But my goodness, two to three million, that is 1% of our population every year coming in. And we're going to, we're talking about an increase from that now. Like, it's this is getting out of control. This is really, really getting out of hand, and uh, uh, it's it's getting a bit hard to make fun of the United Kingdom for not being able to take care of their own border when we have one percent of our population pulling up to us and walking across our street like it's nothing. They just walk up in our hood, and then then they squat in our house. That's what we're dealing with. It gets really hard to make fun of the, the British. They're an island. They have a navy. I know I I know I poop on them for not having a real navy, but they, they have enough. <laughs> they have enough to defend their little island. And they let tens of thousands of people cross. Unarmed men. So I, I can make fun of them because they're an island. But we... <laughs> I can't really say too much given the state of my own border. But this is this is great. This is out of control. Now, in response to this, the Biden administration has finally 
taken a page out of Trump's handbook and did something useful, which was the deployment of 1,500 strapping young men, our soldiers, to the southern border. Unfortunately, those young men are not there to turn back the hordes, but rather they're there to screen them and then let them go. Because without Title 42, our default policy goes back to catch and release. Never mind. I, I said it was useful, Ed, that it's fucking useless. <laughs> this guy's useless. Oh my goodness. You, you're going to send the troops there to get a good look at them, you know, get a get a real good up close and personal look at the people invading our country. And then you're going to let then you're going to let them go and walk the other way and pretend you didn't see anything like, yeah, that's our policy. Oh, my goodness. How long until we get Trump back? Oh, oh, a year and a half. Oh, ooh, ooh, I, I don't know if we got that long. <laughs> I don't know if we have that long. This Biden guy's got to go. No Biden. No Biden indeed. Get that guy out of here. Well, this guy's got to go. Uh-uh, that's... It meant, I, I, I tried to give him the benefit of the doubt. I tried. I saw that he was sending the troops. I'm like, oh my goodness. Finally, our troops are being used for something useful. It, it, and then I, I hear what the troops are going to be doing there, and I'm like, oh, my God, bro. <laughs> it's a comedy show, it, or at least it would be if it weren't for the drugs and the sex trafficking and the human trafficking and the child trafficking. A whole lot of trafficking. A uh, whole lot of trafficking. So it's it's more of a tragedy than a comedy show. But, uh, but if you don't laugh at it, you'll cry. That's the way I'll put it. It's a... It's a disgrace. It's a goddamn shame. It's what it is. But yeah, we got to get this guy up out of here. We need Trump back and pronto. But uh, we're just going to we're just going to gloss over that and go look at uh, the faults of some other country for the time being. Why don't we let's look at Pakistan. Uh, the Pakistanis. Yeah, uh, we, we talked briefly earlier about Imran Khan being released from prison. He was, again, arrested on charges of bribery and corruption, but the courts have deemed his arrest to be illegal, which begs the question, why was he arrested in the first place if it was legal? Uh, who knows? Uh, well, some people might know, but I don't, but I can assume some level of corruption within Pakistan and him being isolated and singled out to take a fall of some sorts. Or to be punished in some way, because he perhaps went against the Pakistani establishment, similar to how Trump goes against the American establishment. This might have been a similar move, because they're trying their damnedest to arrest Trump. Not that it's going to stop him or me from voting for him, but he was arrested. Then he was released. They said it was legal, but when he was arrested, massive rioting broke out across the country and <clears throat> sent Pakistan into chaos. It took a good while and th this was happening at around if i'm not mistaken this was roughly around the same time that sri lanka had that massive uh wave of protests like well now that i think about it sri lanka lebanon sri lanka uh pakistan there was a lot of unrest that exploded onto the streets last year pakistan was one of them and you had a really rough time. Oh, yeah. And Iraq. And Iraq. Yeah, yeah. But back on the point. So you had a lot of unrest in the, in the country. And by unrest, I use that in reference to protests and riots instead of referring to either one individually because there was a mix. So lots of unrest in Pakistan. And then we have this sudden and arbitrary move to bring him out of jail which is almost as sudden and arbitrary as the decision to arrest him, which some suggest was an attempted regime change operation carried out by the United States, using its influence in Pakistan and the Pakistani establishment to, uh, say, teach him a lesson. Now, I cannot myself assert too strongly if that is the case, yeah, I, we uh, it, it was a while ago, a while ago, 
It happened very suddenly. It wasn't uh, some major event like Kazakhstan, Belarus. But given the pattern of behavior, we can probably assume that there was some U.S. meddling there. I mean, the U.S. really likes meddling in other people's countries. When I say the U.S., I mean the current ruling class of our country who believe it is their moral mission to control everyone else. I, wouldn't, I would not be opposed to believing that we played a role in ousting Imran Khan. And this is certainly something that he himself accuses the United States of doing. He literally accused us of conducting regime change when he was put in jail. But with him out, and people still being upset about his arrest, Pakistan now finds itself laying atop a political fault line. That's the way I've taken to describing it. A political fault line. Where he could, and part of this is also uh, the Duran's analysis, where even though he's out now, people were really upset by him being put away. So even though he's out, there is the possibility that even he and his actions, in the event that he gets back into power, might not be enough to satisfy the masses. And then you could possibly end up with a revolutionary situation in Pakistan, like what almost occurred uh, when he was arrested in the first place. So again, shout out to the Durant. So, a very interesting situation in Pakistan, and, and truthfully, a, a pretty dangerous one, considering that Pakistan is a nuclear-armed country, which makes this situation more meaningful than it otherwise was. And all of this chaos and turmoil that happened regarding his arrest, is, that was before the biblical floods that just absolutely washed away Pakistan from the map. Like, it was, it was insane. It, like every week some new village was underwater i'm like how do you how does that even happen like what did you do to god to piss him off like what what did you do did you, did you kick a puppy or something like what happened what happened did, did you did you slit the did you slit the throat of a baby dolphin like what happened here how do you just get smacked in the face with this act of god you had to have done something. There's no there's no way. You had to have done something. I don't know what it was. And I bet, the, you know, the Pakistanis, they, they don't know what they did either. But I bet you they won't do it again. But Pakistan is in quite the rough spot. They're still rebuilding from all that. Uh, we talk about Turkey and Syria having an earthquake. I'm sure the Pakistanis would have preferred to have the earthquake over watching their home float away out to sea. You know, maybe maybe those some of them will become pirates, and then you'll have pirates of the uh, the Arabian Sea. Sure, pirates of the Arabian Sea. But that's Pakistan, a very interesting situation indeed. But now, now we'll get into the our third, technically fourth, but third topic of discussion, which is this article from the Spectator. A very, very, very interesting article from The Spectator that I was intrigued by. Now, I, I was entertained a little, but really intrigued. And the reason I was intrigued, excuse me, the reason I was intrigued is because this is what I believe to be... Um, Trying to put trying to put my words together so I don't trip over them like I did the last few episodes. This article really, I believe, sums up the pro-Ukrainian position as of now, and that the things that the pro-Ukraine side are finally starting to come to terms with, and that in of itself signals to me what this what the pro-Ukraine side of the war is going to be dealing with over the next few months because ukraine has functionally lost the war they have fun they're out of air defense missiles they're out of artillery they're low on manpower like they they're literally kidnapping boys off the street and having old men come serve in the front lines like it's it's bad Ukraine has functionally lost the war. 
So to see the pro-Ukraine side, which has been rather fervent in their support of Ukraine and in their you know swatting away of any you know any pro-Russia, any anti-Ukraine, any here's the hard truth, and I know I'm somewhere in between all three, and you know I'll be perfectly honest with you that they really didn't want to hear that. They wanted to hear Ukraine is winning, Russia's losing, Russia's terrible logistics. The West has done this master stroke. Now they're going to beat Russia and Russia blundered. Ukraine is doing this David and Goliath struggle and they're going to come out on top. All these weapon all these weapons the West has been given, all the money the West has been given. There's no way Ukraine loses. The world has turned against Russia. That's what they used to believe. And that's what a lot of them still do believe. But what this article shows us is the beginning of the end of that line of thinking. Among the pro-Ukraine side, of course. So with that, you know, with me giving you the context for why I felt it the need to go through this article with you, well, parts of the article and comment on it, let's let's get into this. This is a very, very like I said, interesting and insightful article by The Spectator, which is a, a British publication. So let's go through these findings, which primarily concern the war in Ukraine and the effectiveness of the Western response to that war, or more accurately, the lack thereof. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a Western outlet, a British outlet. So, of course... They still think that arming Ukraine has been a successful policy, that Russia has taken massive losses, more losses than the Ukrainians, uh, or something around those lines. Hell, they believe that Russia is running so low on tanks that they didn't have any despair for their Victory Day parade, which they just had on the 9th of May. So the writers of this article still have all the hallmarks of Russia derangement syndrome. And yes, I have just coined that term out of thin air. And I'm, uh, as I'm not sure if anyone else has used it before, but <laughs> the bias is clear and it's strong. Nonetheless, that still just makes the rest of the article more insightful on the change in opinion on the pro-Ukrainian side, you know, from people who aren't living in Ukraine, of course, because the article talks about how the sanctions against Russia have failed, saying, quote, it soon became clear that while the West was keen on an economic war, the rest of the world was not. As its oil and gas exports to Europe fell, Russia quickly upped its exports to China and India, both of which preferred to buy oil at a discount than to make a stand against the invasion of Ukraine. Worse, some of the Russian oil exported to India appears to have been siphoned back to Europe, with a rise in the number of ships taking refined oil from India through the Suez Canal, end quote. Now, again, we talked about the, we've, I've talked about the brilliance of the Indians throughout this war. They don't produce oil, and yet they're making bank off the resale of Russian oil because the Europeans willingly cut themselves off from it. It's, it's, it's genius. It's absolute genius. They are getting rich off of the, uh, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm jealous and proud and impressed at the same time, because that takes, that's a different level of intellect right there. That is the one, one, uh, one million IQ play. You're, I'm going to get rich selling you a resource that you were already getting and I don't even produce it. I don't produce that resource, but because you denied importing it from one supplier, I just bought the difference and then resold my scraps to you at a premium. Like, wow. But anyway, getting back to the article, it, they openly admit that their sanctions are, have just been bypassed because countries around Russia bought, bought the difference. All the oil that Russia wasn't selling to Europe anymore was just offloaded onto the markets of Asia. And then certain countries like 
India, but also China as well. They took the oil and then whatever they didn't use after the fact, because they got it at a discount, so it's not like they care what happens to it, they sell it to the Europeans at above market price. Because the Europeans, uh, the oil, <laughs> the oil markets in Europe are so bad that you can sell them higher and more expensive oil because they don't have options. They cut themselves off from options. Norway cannot power the entirety of Europe and they cut themselves off from Russia. Romania cannot power all of Europe. So I, they have to buy it for what they can get it for on the market. And because all of Europe is in that same situation, you can sell it to European countries at higher prices, H above market, mark, above market prices, excuse me, they get to sell it. India, China, they get to sell the oil that they got for a discount at above market price. That's what I call stonks. That's what I call economics. So they, this article admits that that is what's happening. The sanctions didn't work. The trade just got rewouted. They, and it, it wasn't just the energy coming from Russia into Europe going around the sanctions wall by going through India, China, and a number of other countries, and then making their way to Europe through the Suez Canal. They also talked about how German car manufacturers also got around the economic war by selling their goods, their cars and car parts, to countries bordering Russia, where Russian merchants or middlemen who had access to those countries, visas, passports, etc., or even Russian citizens, they would go in, where they would buy the goods and then resell the goods to Russian consumers in Russia proper. So they bring up the way in which the sanctions have been bypassed on both sides of the war. The article also brings up how sanctions against wealthy and influential Russians didn't work either. These so-called oligarchs, the Russian oligarchs that we've been sanctioning for what, six, well, no, eight, nine years now? For almost a decade, we've been sanctioning these oligarchs, and this article is now admitting what I could have told you, and as a matter of fact, that I, I did tell you though, almost three years ago, which is that it wasn't working. They they say here, let me, let me find where I left off at, yeah, it, it doesn't affect them, they because they have access to dual passports, or, or better access to it, and they're wealthy enough. Uh, these people of high enough status to where they would even warrant getting the sanctions placed on them, they're wealthy enough to just go to a different country and buy the Western goods that they want, then go back to Russia. So you, you've done literally nothing. They, they can go to a different country that doesn't abide by the sanctions, buy the Western goods, and then go back home. The sanctions mean nothing to them. And so now here we are with this article of these people who have bought into all the hype, the, the anti-Russia hype through and through. They've bought into all of it. And even they have been forced to recognize what we have already observed through the war and well, what we already knew was going to be the case, which is that the sanctions have failed. They've even caught on to how easily they're being avoided on both sides of the Ukraine. Like, again, I have been just gobbling India's, <laughs> their, their private parts on this one because it's, it's, it's insane. They don't produce oil and yet they get rich off the sale of oil because they bought from Russia at a discount and then sold to Europe at above market prices because the Europeans cut themselves off from their largest supplier. So they had no choice but to buy it at whatever the hell you charge it for. It's insane. So even this pro-Ukraine, heavily inundated and heavily, you know, Russia deranged uh, article, these article writers, even they have had to recognize this. They've also had to recognize that something else has not happened, which is that the world has not turned against Russia. Like, I can't tell you how many times in the first, like, year of the war, even when it was obvious that it wasn't true, as 
towards like the summer and beyond when you had all these countries that weren't doing anything about the war? You have all these people saying, oh, the world turned against Russia. Russia invaded Ukraine. The world turned against The world rallied behind Ukraine to help them mount a brave and resilient defense. And that's just not true. The Western world might have, i.e. the U.S. empire and all its vassal states. But it, the rest of the world, Africa doesn't give a damn about the conflict. The Middle East is tacitly on you, on Russia's side. Certainly Iran is. Turkey was giving drones to the Ukrainians in the beginning of the war, and then they got bought off by the Russians who offered for them to become a gas hub for Russian gas. The Chinese and the Indians were always on side with Russia more than Ukraine, although the Indians were more neutral than the Chinese were. Not to say that either of them are itching to get directly involved in the war. That's India and China together. That's like half the world's population by themselves. Almost half, anyway. But with Indonesia, yeah, that, 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 there, there you go, it's half. Okay, no, it's not half, right? It's it's just about 3 billion people with all three of those countries combined. But 3 billion out of 8 is a lot. Africa is another billion. So, yes, half the world's population. Just off of those regions alone, because uh, I don't have off the top of my head the population of the Middle East to go with. But there, it, it was clear. It was obvious that the world has was not united against Russia. They didn't turn on Putin. That, that didn't happen. But for a year now, we've been hearing this line repeated over and over and over again as if it were true. And now here we have this article. Saying the obvious, once again admitting that the something else that we were told happened has not actually happened. The world didn't turn against Russia because the article says, quote, the West embarked on its sanction war with an exaggerated sense of its own influence around the world. As we have discovered, non-Western countries lack the will to impose sanctions on either Russia or on Russian oligarchs. The results of the miscalculation are there for all to see. In April last year, the IMF forecast that the Russian economy would contract by 8.5% in 2022, and by a further 2.3% this year, that being 2023. As it turned out, GDP fell by just 2.1% last year, and this year, the IMF is forecasting a small rise of 0.7%. And that is all in spite of the war in Ukraine going much more badly than many imagined it would in February of last year. The Russian economy has not been destroyed. It has merely been reconfigured, reoriented to look eastward and southwards rather than westwards, end quote. Now, they defend the sanctions by saying it was the right thing to do, but even in that statement, you can still see the bias here, which is the war is going more badly than anyone imagined it could go, yada, yada, yada. But they also admit that the not just that the sanctions failed, but that the attempt to use the sanctions to destroy Russia's economy also failed. Because remember, we the ruble was gonna the ruble was gonna be rubble. Remember that we, we were gonna we used the mother of all sanctions. We kicked them off of SWIFT. Their currency tipped, dipped, and then it went right back up in a week, and then became stronger than it was before the sanctions, making it one of the strongest currencies on the planet. So even with the, the bias still present, we can see there it's. They're finally coming around to the things that we've been talking about this entire time. It's it's almost heartwarming to see. <laughs> but uh, where were we? So they, they defend the sanctions again by saying it was the right thing to do. But then they continue by saying, quote, If the West is thinking that in the future it can fight wars purely by economic means without bombs or bullets, it is badly mistaken. Western military equipment has allowed Ukraine to mount a David versus Goliath battle 
which it may yet win, and certainly to avoid annexation by Putin. As for economic sanctions, however, we will have to think again, end quote. So again, you, you can see the bias here, David versus Goliath, may yet win. Uh, they're not. <laughs> they're not, but look, it's true that they wouldn't even be in this without our weapons, without our money. But even with all these, even, even in believing things continue, even in continuing to believe things that themselves are proving untrue, which is that uh, Ukraine is not going to win. No, they're not. They're not going to win. And the war is not going more badly than imagined. It's just going a lot slower than we imagined. Big difference. But even in believing these things, we are observing, ladies and gentlemen, my lovely listeners, is people who believe the propaganda wholeheartedly are starting to notice that what they are being told and what they are seeing are not matching up. What they are seeing and what they have been told for over a year now, they're finally noticing that it's not matching up. And this is before the coming failure of the Ukraine spring offensive. Now, he, they do bring up what, this one point at the very end when they talk about how if the West has to rethink its strategy because uh, if we're going to... Uh, what they say specifically, what they say specifically. Uh, oh, yeah. If the West is thinking that in the future it can fight wars purely by economic means without bombs or bullets, it is badly mistaken. And... As for sanctions, we're going to have to think again. Now, that line scares me a little. Because while it's true, we're not going to be able to fight economic wars when our economies are, you know, deindustrializing and becoming shrinking, you know, pieces of the pie in the global pie. Shrinking slices in the global pie. The United States is maintaining its status, and the United States is attempting a reindustrialization. It's a very... Hasn't quite got off the ground yet, but we still have the ability. The Europeans have shot themselves in the foot and they're just falling off a cliff in terms of economic relevancy. So the idea that the United States itself is going to be able to wage economic war against anybody in the future without some massive change in the calculus, that being a full reindustrialization of America, right? We're just not going to be able to do it. Our influence isn't what it used to be. And the dependence on the West is also not what it used to be. Again, the multipolar world is there. Integration with Russia and China is there. China's the workshop of the world. So as long as you have a deal with China, you're good. As long as you have cheap energy, either from the Middle East or from Russia, you're good. Oh, and the Chinese can offer you infrastructure along the way? Great. Great. What do I need the West for? What do I need the shrinking markets of Europe for that don't innovate? The Americans are nice, but the Americans want to control everything I do. So the fact that the alternatives are there and the dependency on Europe and the United States is declining uh, roughly in proportion to the rise of Russia and China as an alternative block, the multipolar world, we see the ability to wage economic war and to win wars through purely economic means disappear. So they are correct in saying that we can't fight wars through economic means alone without bombs and bullets. But the reason that scares me is because people in this country and in NATO are going to take that and run as far with it as they possibly can. And so then People are gonna people are gonna refer to this and this conclusion right here. A lot more people, as this war goes on, with the war in Ukraine, are going to come to this conclusion. The, the, they're gonna draw all the wrong lessons from this war, which is another thing that I'm a little afraid of. Like I can try to push back, but let's be honest, folks. I am, <laughs> I am, a very small podcast in a very big sea. I I can I can only do so much. To bring common sense to the masses. Uh, the masses being my contemporaries. But 
a lot of people are going to draw all the wrong conclusions from this war, and then they're going to base their assumptions on how we should go about the Taiwan war based on these faulty conclusions that they are going to draw from this war. No one's going to say, hmm, maybe if we hadn't gotten involved, it would have never happened. Some people will say that, but then they're going to preface that with, oh, we could have done it better. We could have done this, 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 and this. Let's do this next time instead of saying let the, let's not have a next time. Let's not have a next time isn't going to be on the agenda. It's how are we going to do, how are we going to get ourselves into the same situation, but do it better next time. That's what we're going to be dealing with. So when we hear we, we can't fight wars through purely economic means, we without bombs and bullets, that means, well, forget the economic warfare. We're going to use bombs and bullets. And people are going to refer to the, the quote-unquote lessons what what we learned from the ukraine war is oh if you if you fight hard enough for democracy everyone will come to your side oh the united states needs to be ready to respond we, we need to have a large arsenal of weapons so that we can supply an armed country forever that, that that's gonna be the conclusion they come to now perhaps an upside of that conclusion is a focus on industry because there's no way we're going to do that without industry the russians have outproduced us and our entire military alliance quote unquote i say quote unquote because uh, it's only our military we're the only ones with the military so this military alliance quote unquote is being outproduced in every aspect of military production except for planes and the russians are already catching up on drones we spend three quarters of a trillion dollars on our military to get outproduced by a country with half our, our population. We lost to Russia. And the lessons they're going to learn are, well, let's just go all in from the start. And, and that's another thing I'm afraid we're going to see. Because never underestimate a warmonger's ability to draw all the wrong conclusions from a war to justify more war because now instead of saying we shouldn't go again that that's not even going to be an option on the table it's going to be no we should commit more we should we should have given them uh long-range missiles earlier we we should have given them all these things earlier so they could have had a, a a greater impact early on in the war and scored a decisive victory and turned the tide and just all this fantasy land things that's what we're going to be dealing with so while it is nice to see that the the pro-Ukraine side, and I believe this is just going to be the beginning, is finally waking up to the fact that what they have been told and what they've been told for the last year isn't lining up with what they're seeing. They're finally using their lying eyes to see that they've been lied to. Now what comes after will either be the best or worst of times. It all depends on which conclusions exactly are drawn from this war. Uh, I'll reserve my judgment on it. I, my hopes are low. Uh, my hopes are very low. Uh, judging off the Afghanistan withdrawal, people are just going to double down on some new commitment so they can redeem themselves. Oh, because, you know, you remember the second we left Afghanistan, everyone was talking about, what does this say to our allies? How is America going to reassure its allies? And instead of saying, how is America going to keep itself out of Afghanistan from now on? It's, what does this say to our allies? Like our country and the impact that that war had on our country, let alone Afghanistan, is just completely ignored in favor of but my allies. And I, as sad as it is to say, that's probably what's going to happen with Ukraine. And there's only one place left to go, which is to triple down on Taiwan. We doubled down on Ukraine in response to the Afghan withdrawal and how badly we did that one, which I believe was a deliberate attempt. It was it was done deliberately poorly. We doubled down on Ukraine to, to show that we're, we're going to stand up for our allies, even though Ukraine's not our ally. We have no obligation to go over there. But we're, we, we stand up for our allies. You don't need to worry about America's credibility, even though us doubling down on Ukraine has destroyed that credibility. It's destroyed the sanctions weapon. It's destroyed the illusion that the sanctions weapon is this almighty thing. Russia walked it off and got stronger from it. So what I expect is we're going to triple down on Taiwan. 
Now, perhaps I will be impressed. Uh, uh, maybe not as impressed as I was with India, getting rich off the sale of a resource it doesn't have, but maybe I'll be impressed and we'll all be safer because maybe, just maybe, the right conclusions are going to be drawn from this war, which is that we shouldn't be getting involved in these types of world affairs. We shouldn't be playing stupid games if we don't want to win stupid prizes. Perhaps next time there's a war, we stay out and do our best to stay out instead of jumping in and trying to be involved but not really be involved. We're going to give you weapons, but we're not involved. We're not a part of the war. You know, we'd all be safer in that world. Now, would it be the best environment for you being invaded? Probably not. But hey, I'm not <laughs> I'm not you, so it's great for me. Just like America coming to the defense of an insert country here would be great for them, but not for me. If we don't go, that's great for me and not for them. It's subjective, and I choose me, you know. But, but. The moral of the story is that the pro-Ukraine side is slowly but surely coming to the realization that they've been lied to. And I think that that in and of itself can still go a very long way towards finally bringing this conflict to an end. Now, will they be able to accept that a peace deal between Ukraine and Russia, a negotiated settlement, as everyone's keen on talking on, talking about, Will they be able to accept that a negotiated settlement is going to be loss mitigation for Ukraine and not Ukraine gets everything it wants and Russia goes home with its tail between its legs? That is a question we'll have, to, uh, we'll have to wait and see if it'll be answered. And we'll have to wait and see if it'll be answered on another day. But with this article, you can see people are waking up. I mean, really, I mean, really think about it. People are waking up, and this is before the failure of the Ukrainian spring offensive. This is before Russia begins the backbreaker offensive. Which means that this article is likely to be just the first of many, many more like it. The rudest of awakenings, folks, is on its way. And judging by this article as it is, in my view, reflective of the general pro-Ukraine position, a lot of people are not ready for that reckoning. But we are, and we will be waiting. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. I had to fight through two internet outages, which thankfully ended very shortly, so I'll have to get back to recording. But... That is all I've got. The world is changing. It's changing. We see some people change with it and others don't. But regardless of how that works itself out, we will have fun watching that change together. Now, I've been your host, Hashan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.